Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Tuesday and uh, some potential things to keep an eye on, some BFDs to keep an eye on today. Obviously, the big report about top Pence aides testifying to a grand jury, Mark Short and Greg Jacob. Uh, Mark Short, who was uh, Pence's chief of staff, Greg Jacob, who was his counsel. Uh, And uh, as the New York Times notes, uh, their testimony is the latest indication that the Justice Department's criminal investigation into the events surrounding and preceding the January 6th riot is intensifying after weeks of growing questions about the urgency the department has put on examining former President Trump's potential criminal liability. Meanwhile, uh, Arizona's fake electors are also getting subpoenas, again, demonstrating the breadth of the DOJ January 6th probe. Uh, We have more evidence coming out from the January 6th committee Evidence uh, that Trump altered his post-Capitol riot speech, that he actually crossed out lines directed at the rioters saying, I want to be very clear, you do not represent me. He took that out. Also, another portion crossed out by Trump reads, I am directing the Department of Justice to ensure that all lawbreakers are prosecuted. Uh, So to sort all of these events out, we are very fortunate today to be joined by Andrew Weissman, a former Justice Department prosecutor. He was the lead prosecutor on special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Also, the author of a critically important book, which I strongly recommend, Where the Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. Uh, Andrew is now a professor of practice at NYU Law School and a legal analyst for NBC and MSNBC. So thanks for joining me today, Andrew. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's talk about Mark Short appearing before the grand jury. Short is the former chief of staff, and we now learn that he appeared last week before this uh, this grand jury. He's the highest known Trump White House official to appear before the grand jury. He was captured on an ABC News camera Friday, leaving a uh, D.C. district court, uh, and he confirmed Monday night that he appeared under subpoena. So let's just talk about the significance of that, whether that really, you know, where what that tells you about the Department of Justice's investigation and where it's reaching. Well, there's, there's no question that it is a good sign. If you were like me, concerned about just whether the DOJ is is going to you know really be picking up the ball from the January 6th committee. I think his going into the grand jury and the chief counsel going into the grand jury is at least potentially significant and a step in the right direction. So one, as an insider tip, it is really useful that they're going into the grand jury. In other words, they're not just being interviewed. I think in a political corruption case, it's really important to lock witnesses in to have their testimony under oath. And the reason for that is you don't want people to slide backwards um, and to claim, you know, the FBI or whoever is taking down notes got it wrong. Um, It's really useful to have a transcript of exactly what they said under oath. But more importantly, substantively, they potentially have a lot of evidence. So Jacob, you know, we have a good sense of what he might have said because he wrote a draft op-ed for the Washington Post Mm -hmm. that the Washington Post subsequently published, So, which which is a pretty damning document that really takes uh, Rudy Giuliani and Eastman to task for 
what he describes as a really kind of harebrained scheme to say that the vice president has the authority not to count the electoral votes. Hmm. And the significance of that is one showing that there was significant disagreement with the president's position, but also it puts the lie to the president's January 5th public statement that the vice president was on board with the fact that he had the authority not to count the votes. So that's very useful in terms of showing Donald Trump's criminal intent, that he was putting something out there that was directly false about the vice president's position. And of course, it egged on people to come to the Capitol because they thought, as the president said, that the vice president thought he had the authority to not count. So he was really Hmm. fanning the flames uh, for January 6th. So you also uh, tweeted out that Mark Short's testimony is relevant to a lot of different things, including the inspector general investigation into Clark and Eastman, the pressure uh, to uh, on, on Pence to not testify. Also, let's just break down some of the other things they might be looking at. I mean, if the Department of Justice is trying to make a seditious conspiracy case against Trump, that requires proof that there was obstruction of Congress by force, right? So the evidence of that threat of violence is key. And I think you made this point last night on television. If Mark Short knew the day before on January 5th that Pence could be in danger and that the Secret Service knew that you said it would be laughable to suggest the president did not also know. Yeah, absolutely. He obviously would be important in this case as well. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, this is one of those things that if in the grand jury, they are really pressed for everything that they have evidence about. So one would be this issue of of being aware of violence beforehand, before January 6th. And obviously, we've heard from the January 6th committee, various people testifying about that. But you could have Short and Greg Jacob could both testifying about being aware of that and who else was aware of that and what was being done or significantly what was not being done, as Cassidy Hutchinson testified quite remarkably. They may also have evidence about the so-called fake elector scheme and what was being done there. They can have evidence about the scheme to replace the then acting attorney general with Jeffrey Clark. So there are a whole host of things that they could be aware of. And then maybe finally, you made reference to the transcript of Mm -hmm. the president's statements on January 7th, where there was, um, it was released what he said and what he crossed out and didn't say. But one of the things that was in that speech and was not crossed out was just a what's, you know, a damn lie, um, which yeah. is on January 7th, the president says, you know, I immediately called in the National Guard and law enforcement hmm. on January 6th. That's in the speech. It was not crossed out. And that means that it was premeditated to say something that was simply false. And um, Mark Short and Greg Jacob could both testify about what was going on and the efforts to try to get help from people on January 6th and knowing that they were not getting any assistance from the president. So there are many, many ways that they could be helpful. I do want to caution the listeners, though, that we don't really know who the prosecutors were who put these two individuals into the grand Mm -hmm. jury. We don't know if it was coming just from the inspector general 
Um, and it seems like the inspector general is running the investigation into Jeff Clark and Eastman, in which case it is conceivable that the testimony of these two folks was very tailored to deal with those issues, um, or whether they were put in by the prosecutors who have the fake elector scheme, or whether it was both. Um, so we, there is a lot of open questions about exactly what they were asked about and the scope of the investigation um, that they were going to be witnesses in. So just sort this out for us, for those of us who are lay people. Uh, if it is the inspector general who is pushing this, is the inspector general pursuing criminal charges? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the inspector general has limited jurisdiction. The, the inspector general is there to examine DOJ or former DOJ officials, as well as people who may have aided and abetted or conspired with them. So the inspector general would have the ability to conduct an investigation of uh, Jeffrey Clark, as he, since he was a mm-hmm. DOJ official. And they could also investigate, and it appears they are investigating John Eastman on the theory that I mentioned, which is that he was conspiring or working with Jeffrey Clark. That investigation can be criminal. They have that authority to do that. Very often, the inspector general will do an investigation. If it's a significant criminal investigation, they will pair up with another agency, such as the FBI. When I was in the department uh, and running the fraud section, we actually had a, a corruption investigation and it involved the FBI and the inspector general. We just worked together and coordinated the investigation. It's not clear at all that that is what's going on here. You know, we just have breadcrumbs and uh, tea leaves to read because of the uh, information about uh, the Jeffrey Clark search and the John Eastman seizure of his phone um, and litigation over that. Um, But it appears that it's solely the um, inspector general that is looking into that. So I want to get to the whole question about whether or not Trump should be charged, because obviously there's a lot of debate about whether he should be charged, what he should be charged for. And and I want to talk to you about your op-ed piece that you had, which was really very pointed advice and a a critique of Merrick Garland's uh, Department of Justice. You know, I guess hanging over um, our heads uh, here is is that sense of uh, all of the missed opportunities we've had in the past, and this may go back for decades now, to hold Donald Trump accountable, that on so many occasions, there were opportunities to basically draw a line and say, okay, uh, Mr. Trump, you have violated this law, this statute, you need to be held accountable. And time and time again, prosecutors in New York, local prosecutors, federal prosecutors, whatever, passed on it, obviously, the Mueller investigation, the two impeachments. You know, my my sense is, I mean, talk to me about just the, the, the frustration and the danger of all of this, because it feels as if every time there is an effort to hold Donald Trump accountable and it fails, that he feels emboldened. And therefore, in some ways, the danger increases. Do you know what I'm, I'm getting at here? Yeah, I, I agree. I do think it is important to parse out the the specifics on that. But I do think that there's an emboldening of him and also a concern about the precedent you're setting for yeah. other people after him. Um, but I think that comes both from 
prosecutorial decisions and from those people enabling him and those people around him where he would think that I can do this because I'm surrounded by a bunch of yes men or yes women. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's both. And I, But the reason I think it's important to maybe parse this out is you know, as far as we know, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office that did an investigation into financial dealings did an investigation, did as much as they could. I mean, we're told it's still continuing, but it may just be that they there either was nothing there or there was not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the system may have mm-hmm. operated, unfortunately, in the, the, you know, mm-hmm. for people who want to see an indictment the way it should. I think the Mueller investigation is somewhat different because they're the findings were laid out sort of ad nauseum, if anything, sort of in a sort of 400 pages of pretty turgid Mm -hmm. prose about various issues concerning the then president that included obstruction of justice. But as you know, under Department of Justice guidelines that we had to follow, we were not able to bring an indictment. But there was a decision that had to be made about what would happen when the president left office. And so I think it is fair to ask why that wasn't picked up after uh, President Trump left office. Um, My own view is that if you truly believe that the president and the presidency is not supposed to be above the law, um, that it's very, very dangerous when you do have sufficient proof of a serious crime committed while the president is in office, that it really cannot be the case that once he's out of office or she's out of office, that you say, oh, let's just let bygones be bygones. If you do that, the message you're sending is that the presidency is really above the law. And also when you have a, a case, something like obstruction of justice, What's the point of appointing another special counsel? Because the message to the president is you can actually obstruct and you're not going to be held to account. So I do think it is fair to see that as a missed opportunity. And with that, all of that history, I can understand why the public and and me included are really concerned at this point that the prosecutors who are charged with investigating criminality relating to the events on January 6th are really uh, doing a thorough job with sufficient backbone to go after any criminality. See, this is a really important point because one of the lessons that Donald Trump has internalized is the fact that justice can be obstructed, that obstruction of justice works, that it can be successful, that cover-ups can work, that he can successfully cover up the crimes. Um, and, and and so it's sort of turned around that old adage that it's not the crime, it is the cover-up. Because, I mean, we are seeing a cover-up in real time of the former president's behavior involving, you know, the, the big lie and, uh, and, and January 6th. And as you just pointed out, uh, the evidence was laid out rather extensively about obstruction of justice, which I'm guessing that Donald Trump is sitting there going, well, you know, I'm glad I did that because it, it works and, and, I'll tr- and I'll do it again. Yeah. So I, I think that obstruction, unfortunately, if it's not prosecuted, does work. And the message mm-hmm. is to continue trying it. You know, a good example is we don't know yet this whole story of what happened with the Secret Service text. Uh, we don't know yet what happened with the call logs on January 6th at the White House. But it is conceivable that one or both of those things involve 
obstruction of justice by some person, maybe not every person, but some people, for instance, deciding we do not need those documents and it's nothing good comes from them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very often the, the beneficiary, you know, is going to be, you know, the target because that there's that evidence is not there anymore. So I, I personally, when I was a prosecutor, I always thought that what was deemed, quote, process crimes are very, very important to prosecute. Um, when you have obstruction or lying to investigators, because um, you have to deter that behavior if you're going to have a successful investigation. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, you wrote um, this widely discussed uh, op-ed piece in The New York Times uh, critiquing the way that it appears that Merrick Garland is going about this investigation. And, and, and you wrote that, that you thought the Department of Justice was handling the January 6th investigation with a myopic focus, that uh, you thought the DOJ was treating the day as a single discrete event separate from other efforts to overturn the election. Uh, and, and you wrote that Garland was operating in a bottom-up approach, uh, you know, prosecuting the lowest-ranking uh, members of a conspiracy and flipping people as a prestige, which is traditional. So we, your 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 main case, and again, you correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, was that you, you were advising the Department of Justice they should be pursuing a multi-pronged conspiracy, a hub-and-spoke conspiracy. So talk to me a little bit about that and, and why that might be a more effective way of prosecuting this case than just focusing on the details of what happened that day. Sure. Um, so the, um, the the reason I wrote that piece is after Cassidy Hutchinson testified before the January 6th committee, there were widespread reports that prosecutors at the Department of Justice were surprised by her testimony and were learning what she had to say at the same time that we in the public were. And as somebody who is a prosecutor, that raised a lot of concerns um, as to why they did not know that either from her or from other people who prosecutors would have interviewed in the White House, um, because what she said was something that uh, other people knew various uh, pieces of. And it was concerning to me that what we were told was an investigation that was diligent and thorough had not gotten to that point for one reason or another. So that was the impetus for the piece. And if you compared what the department was doing um, with respect to the actual attackers, the people who were rioting and went into the Capitol, and they've done an amazing job uh, prosecuting that and making cases, mm-hmm. including against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. That didn't. That seemed like a, a a sort of narrow view because I wasn't sure how that was going to quickly or at all get to all of the other things that were laid out by the January Sixth Committee. Because I thought one of the incredible things about the January Sixth Committee is they approached the task as what was the plan that was going on uh, in Donald Trump's mind to overturn the election. Um, And they looked at all sorts of aspects, whether it was creating fake electors, putting pressure on various state officials, whether it's in Arizona or Georgia or other states, pressure on the vice president, uh, a scheme to behead the leadership of Jeez. the Department of Justice to put in a crony who would come up with a false 
statement that there was fraud in the elections that it could be used to undermine the counting of the votes, uh, whether it was a scheme by Rudy Giuliani or uh, Sidney Powell or Mike Flynn to seize the ballots. I mean, there was a, a whole range of um, things that the president was trying to do that culminated in the events on January 6th as the last hurrah, because that's when the vote was actually going to take place. But it wasn't looking at at that event in isolation, nor was it saying we're going to first start and uh, only look at the low-level people who entered the Capitol. Um, It really looked at it more holistically. And I thought, as a prosecutor, that made a lot of sense. And basically all I was saying is I hope the Department of Justice is going to follow that same approach and was concerned that they weren't. Okay, again, for us lay people, uh, define hub and spoke conspiracy. Sure. So hub and spoke is a bit of a term of art where imagine that you have Donald Trump as the hub and the various spokes could be the Department of Justice scheme the attack on the Capitol, uh, the pressure on the vice president, the pressure on state election officials like Brad Raffensperger. So those would be all sorts of schemes that emanating from the hub. So that seems really big, really complex. You seem to suggest in some ways that would be easier to do than just focusing on 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 some small aspect. I mean, I because it would eliminate certain defenses. But I mean, that seems like a very a sprawling, a comprehensive kind of of indictment that that would take a great deal of time for the Department of Justice to put together. Or, or am I misreading that? Well, I do think that it is broader and thus could be more time consuming, but. Um, if I were a prosecutor, I would definitely want to include as many of the schemes as I could yeah. prove up. Um, but also, I don't know that I I guess I'm going to disagree with you in sure. terms of is it possible? I mean, you know, the, the department has a lot of people and it has a lot of agents <laughs> and investigators and you can walk and chew gum. And frankly, we've seen the January 6th committee do a pretty amazing job. Now, granted, they have a they have a they have a different audience and a different level of proof, and they can rely on on hearsay. But I don't think it's all that complicated. I mean, I've worked on Enron and I've worked on the special counsel. I actually think the scheme is pretty simple. It's a president who wants to stay in office even though he lost the election. Yeah, and they were in a very fairly short period of time. So we're talking about a not a you know years there were various steps and yes you have a lot of people to interview but i don't think it's it's not a terribly complicated okay um, no you're not i'm, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with you really because i i, I yeah. actually completely agree with you on all this because a lot of this spade work has already been done i mean a lot of this yeah. has already been laid out so what has been this relationship between the january 6th committee and the department of justice it seems as if the department of justice was taken by surprise by some of the things they have come up with, that the committee has effectively nudged the Department of Justice into doing something that it was reluctant to do. Is that the way you see it? Yeah. So, you know, one thing I do think it's important for people to know is what is going on is really unusual. Um, When I've been in the department and on high profile matters, 
I want to go first at the department. I don't want Congress or a state prosecutor to go mm-hmm. ahead of me. I want to be the person who first interviews witnesses for a whole host of reasons. Um, it's also really important for when I was doing cases to make sure we we spoke to witnesses and we also didn't let witnesses to the extent we could know what other evidence in the case was so that there couldn't be an accusation that they were tailoring their testimony to what else was going on. But there are a whole host of reasons. And, and frankly, I think one of the reasons you're seeing the January 6th committee raising publicly their concern about where the department is, is because experienced people on the Hill are aware that this is an unusual situation. They don't usually get to go out so far ahead of the department if there was an active investigation. Um, having said that, that's all looking backwards. I do think that the, the January 6th committee and the excellent work and the public hearings have nudged the department forward and also in some ways given them political cover to uh, be more aggressive and to rethink what they're doing. And I have zero issue with the credibility and bona fides of the attorney general. And I do think his recent statements are really positive and a good sign. Obviously, Hmm. he has to live up to those. And we'll all wait and see what it does. Yeah, and he's going to be sitting down with Lester Holt from NBC News tonight, and you and I have not heard what he's going to say there. So let's just talk about, um, look, the reality is that as much as we think that it's important that uh, the former president be held accountable, that presidents are not above the law, there are tremendous risks uh, in bringing criminal charges, even if Merrick Garland thinks there's sufficient evidence. Uh, You were on NPR last week and said there was ample evidence to investigate Uh, the crime of obstructing Congress. Uh, But look, the reality is that, I mean, I'm I'm trying to be sympathetic to Merrick Garland. I mean, I I share frustration about how slow this has gone, but he's got to know that this is going to be the defining decision of his entire tenure in office, if not his entire career, whether or not to charge a former president of the United States. And there are multiple risks here, aren't there? There are risks that he would bring charges and Trump would be acquitted or he would bring charges. Trump would be convicted, but the conviction overturned. And it seems almost certain that if he brought charges, it would further divide America. So try to get into the heads of the people in the Department of Justice, because they have to know that even if it's the right thing to do, that this will take a divided country and it will pour kerosene on the situation. And it may be worth it, but the reality is you have to go into it with your eyes wide open that this is going to um, create a massive, unprecedented political firestorm. So I think that is all true. I think it somewhat jumps the gun in terms of where we are. You know, I'm a sort of very linear, boring lawyer. And so, you know, (laughs) what I do is I think of this as right now, the question before the department is having a thorough, competent investigation. Where that will lead and the decision that comes at the end of that is it's not really ripe. But because we're, you know, in this forum where we can start thinking about what if and what if, you know, hypotheticals, there's no question that it'll be a tough decision. But I guess there are a couple of things I would point out. One, we would not be the only Democratic 
government that has brought charges against sitting and or former presidents, CEG, France and Israel. So it's not unheard of. And I also think that while it certainly can be divisive, it also can be useful to have a trial in a court of law with a judge where evidence has to be presented and tested where people can see what's going on. Essentially, it would be like the January 6th committee, but with many more rights to the accused to mm-hmm. really test that this is going on and for the public to, to see and make their own judgment. And then the final point is, with while there are all of those risks, um, something that you mentioned at the outset, it's important to remember the risk of not going forward. If you have significant evidence of a president trying to undertake a coup um, and undermine democracy, what is the risk of not going forward? And to me, if the department gets to the point where they have a significant case, to me, that would be the overriding principle in, to my mind. If they don't go forward with charges, if they decide that it's just too heavy a lift, and Trump is returned to the presidency, what would Trump 2.0 look like, do you think? I um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I have enough alcohol um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, um, at home to even fathom that. The abuse of the pardon power, I think, would which we already saw, I think, would create a completely lawless society. He could essentially engage in crime and have other people engage in crime and then pardon them. I think he has learned to make sure he's surrounded by by lackeys. The article recently in Axios about mm-hmm. essentially getting rid of civil service, which is to put in only political appointees in various agencies, I think would be incredibly harmful so that you don't have a sense of people being loyal to the law and the constitution as opposed to a person, it would be truly frightening. I don't think that's an exaggeration, by the way. What would his Department of Justice look like? I guess the question would be, we've gotten this picture of of members of the Department of Justice who are Trump appointees and Trump 1.0 standing up against him before January 6th. But in Trump 2.0, who would be there? Who would be in the Department of Justice? Who would take those jobs? And what would happen to the career employees? Well, I think what one way to think about that is that Attorney General Sessions was essentially booted out because he understood that the role of, of the Attorney General in the Department of Justice was to be independent of the White House. And for instance, when the president said that we really need to go after more Democrats and you know, essentially fewer Republicans, he knew that that was wrong. But he was replaced by Barr and Barr did the president's bidding in all sorts of ways, including with Michael Flynn taking a position that was just completely, in my view, improper and unethical, providing him a benefit that was not being provided to anyone else and taking a position on the law that the department was simultaneously saying was not the law in other cases. Um, They sought a lower sentence for Roger Stone when they never would have done that for anyone else. So um, Barr really 
um, took the department down the road of um, just being a lackey. But as we've seen, even he had his limits in that he was unwilling to engage in um, the overthrow of a democratic election. Um, so there was, there was some limit on what he would do. I'm afraid that if you follow that pattern that that in sort of Trump 2.0, essentially the attorney general will be people like Jeffrey Clark or Sidney Powell uh, or Michael Flynn, where even that um, limit that uh, Bill Barr um, had and, and Jeffrey Rosen had would not be in place. Well, I think that's one of the lessons that, that Trump would probably think that he had learned, uh, that he has to have the loyalists, that he can't have anyone who has any sense of independence in those positions. And, and of course, in 2.0, he would never face the voters again. He would know that he would never really uh, have to face legal consequences because he could use the pardon power. I'm just interested in in the kinds of lawyers who would staff, and I think you're right about this, who would staff the Department of Justice and the willingness of a Republican Senate to confirm those nominees. I mean, there is, of course, the, the, the check and the balance, but we really haven't seen a willingness on the part of Republicans in Congress to exercise a veto. And you can imagine what the political environment would be like in 2025 with a return Donald Trump and a Republican majority in Congress. So I, I agree with you. And and we're really just talking about the Department of Justice. And, and while yeah. obviously that's very dear to my heart and it strikes at a fundamental tenet of our democracy, I mean, it unfortunately is not hyperbole to say that if he is reelected, I think it'll be hard to know why we're not now in an authoritarian government and we'll, release, we'll really see the end of a sort of American experiment in democracy. So give me your gut sense now. Will Donald Trump be criminally charged by the Department of Justice? What do you think? I am fearful that they're not going to be able to get to where they need to be on the investigation before time runs out. I have every reason to think that Merrick Garland is serious and that what he's currently saying is is true. I'm I'm concerned about the clock. And when does the clock run out in their mind? So I think the the clock is for you know they're not uh, a congressional committee, so they don't have to worry about um, the midterm elections in terms of the investigation. But I also think that the investigation can continue and, and we heard will continue even if the former president announces that he is going to run again. On the other hand, there is a Department of Justice policy that, you know, 60 or even 90 days before an election that you sort of stand down on bringing any charges. Mm -hmm. So that means that we're really talking about sort of the the summer before 2024. Now, that's quite some time. But as we've talked about, there's still a lot to do and a lot of people. Uh, to interview and, you know, potentially a lot of people to flip. And I'm going to put in a plug for something, which is if I were in the department, the two people who I would be putting in the grand jury sooner rather than later are Mark Meadows and Kevin McCarthy. Hmm. I think they both have significant evidence 
you know, it's not at all clear that they would take the Fifth Amendment. Um, I also think the department could, if they couldn't make a criminal case on, let's say, Mark Meadows, they could also immunize him and get his testimony. And I just think if you're trying to advance this and you're worried about the clock, um, you know, both of them have significant evidence uh, hmm. if you are thinking about a case against Donald Trump. Okay, one last question. How important is it in your mind that Congress fix the Electoral Count Act, that they pass this compromise that's up in the Senate now? So, you know, I'm not an expert on that. Um, I do think it's a step in the right direction. I know there's been some uh, criticism that it doesn't go quite far enough. And some of that seems valid, but I think it's definitely a, a step in the right direction to make sure it's clearer. I don't think it will prevent people like a John Eastman from coming up with a counterfactual, but it certainly will make it harder. Um, and anything that helps preserve the integrity of our democratic institutions is worth doing. Andrew Weissman, again, thank you so much. Andrew Weissman's book, Where the Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation, really a must read for that period. Former Justice Department prosecutor, now professor of practice at NYU Law School, legal analyst for NBC and MSNBC. Andrew, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow do this all over again.